Blackbird episode number 62. My name is James, and today I am pleased to welcome back to the show Jeremy Hammond. Jeremy is, of course, an independent journalist who has been indispensable during the COVID pandemic. I wanted to get an update from him now that we've got vaccines and lockdowns and things have nominally been lifted. I want to know what he's thinking about the current state of the pandemic, mitigation efforts, independent people mandating things versus government mandates. All of that stuff. And then in addition, you know, statistics and all the stuff that he's just great on. So without further ado, actually, let's get a little bit of a do. Head over to blackbirdpodcast.com. Be sure to drop your email address in the box there so that you never miss an episode of the show or a piece of written content as that trickles out. If you're feeling particularly generous or if you would like to get early access to these interviews, the day that I complete them rather than the day that they're published, which in some cases is up to like three weeks or a month in advance. And in addition, a few minutes of pre-show banter with me and the guests, then sign up for one of the paid options. You can sign up for $7 a month, which isn't much, or $70 a year, which is even less. You can do all of that at blackbirdpodcast.com. And with that, here is my interview with Jeremy Hammond. Jeremy, welcome back to the show. Thanks for joining me once again. You bet. So since the last time you were here, we have gone beyond lockdowns and masks, uh, although those are still kind of, the threat is ever present, especially in some places of the world. And now we're talking vaccines and boosters and natural immunity might be more effective than the vaccine, maybe not. Why don't you kind of, just kind of give a rundown, I guess, of what's going on in COVID world right now. Yeah, well, essentially, the public health establishment has proven once again their lack of trustworthiness uh, and showing that they, the political goal of achieving a high vaccination rate supersedes the goal of maintaining public health. And a good example of that you just brought up is <clears throat> their position on natural immunity. So, for example, example, uh, you know, the CDC has been saying, even if you've already recovered from COVID-19, you still need to get a vaccine. Mm-hmm. Biden's mandate. There's no exemptions for people who already have natural immunity. They're treating natural immunity as though it doesn't exist. Um, however, uh, we know, I think it's very clear. I've been, I've been researching the literature on this specific subject um, very uh, deeply since at least April. And it's it's very clear to me that that natural immunity is superior. In fact, when you read studies talking about the issue of you know like how immunity because they're trying to do researching like how does immunity actually work with SARS-CoV-2, right? Like what are the mechanisms and what are the correlates of immunity? These are open questions. And so the more we learn, you know, you keep reading these studies, and one thing that jumps out every time you read one of these studies like from immunologists and things, is they talk about how natural immunity is the goal. You know, like that's that's what they're aiming for with the vaccines is how can we make the vaccines work to confer immunity as good as natural immunity? Like, how can we do that? And they're talking, and they're already talking about the fact that these vaccines don't do that. I mean, it's very clear. It's been clear for many, 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 many months. Yeah. That's the case. And it's in that, that should be intuitive. I mean, it was, it, that's what we should have presumed from the beginning, because of course, 
with the vaccines, you're only mounting immune response to one protein of the virus, which is the spike protein. So just intuitively, you know, there's an, it, the fact is, is that there's a narrow immunological focus of the vaccines. But of course, infection confer, confer, confers immune responses to epitopes all, all over the whole virus and other proteins. Yeah. So that's what so we, should, the, we should expect. So just to like get really dumb, uh, <laughs> dumbed down, I, I mean, so the vaccine is really only protecting against like the shell, whereas the innards of the virus is what uh, is what is sort of like being varying, basically, like the variants are are different because of the actual infection, not because of the spike protein. Is that right? Or no, it's actually, that- actually, yeah, the, the thing is with the variants, when they talk about variants of concern, it's mutations in the spike protein that they're oh. concerned about. Because of course, the risk is that, it, well, number one, that, that that's just, that happens to be where the mutations tend to occur. Other parts of the virus tend to be more conserved, meaning that they tend not to have these mutations. Oh. Um, so the mutations are occurring predominantly in the spike protein. And of course, the risk is that the, the immune response that the vaccine induces against the spike protein will no longer be as effective. We've seen that with Delta. I mean, that's uh-huh. uncontroversial. They're acknowledging that it's not as effective against Delta. Um, and I mean, this was to be expected that the virus would mutate and evolve and, and evolve to escape a vaccine-conferred immunity. Mm-hmm. It's much less likely to escape natural immunity for the reason I already mentioned, which is that you, with natural immunity, you must have a much broader repertoire of immune responses Sure. Including to more conserved regions of the virus. So for example, you have T cell responses apart from antibodies, there's cellular immune responses against, for example, the nucleocapsid protein or the membrane protein. So there's other parts of the virus um, that your immune system will respond to. You're not getting that when you have vaccine conferred immunity. So why is it then that a vaccinated person would have lessened symptoms from an infection with a variant that's not necessarily protected against by the vaccine? Yeah, so it originally, of course, the promise was, this is how we reach herd immunity. We're going to mass yeah, well. vaccinate the population and we'll have herd immunity. You know, and, and I was saying back at the time that that's not probably not going to happen. These vaccines haven't been shown to prevent infection. That's what I was saying mm-hmm. ages ago, <laughs> it seems. Um, and, that, and that's proved to be the case. And, and they can argue, oh, well, it was effective against the original Wuhan strain, but guess what? The original Wuhan strain is extinct. It, it does it, 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 oh, <laughs> it exists yeah. in labs, right? I mean, it, it's not circulating anymore. Now we have a new variant, and the predominant variant now is, is the Delta variant. And so they acknowledge that, yes, it, it's not effective against preventing infection and transmission. This is why the CDC reversed itself on the masks, right? First saying, oh, if you're vaccinated, you don't need to wear masks anywhere anymore. Mm-hmm. And then they reverse themselves. Oh, well, if you're fully vaccinated, you still need to keep wearing a mask because they know. So even though it's not as effective in preventing infection, it does so far, the data have indicated that it does provide some protection against severe disease, which of mm-hmm. course is the outcome we really, and it, you know, this is the outcome of importance <laughs> is, is severe disease and death. But I mean, but this is what we were saying way back, you know, when, when they were first authorized for emergency use, we were pointing out the fact that the, the trials weren't designed to determine effectiveness against severe disease or death. You know, they were looking at um, their, their outcome that they measured was one or more symptoms of COVID-19 plus a positive PCR test. 
So that's what they were looking at effectiveness against. Um, and so, you know, there's this open question of what, you know, number one, in the short term, when I mean, you have short term acute adverse events, things like this, um, and that's what they're really looking at with these trials. But then there's longer term outcomes. There's things, you know, in the literature, there's something called nonspecific effects vaccines. So things that, you know, like uh, um, whether beneficial or or detrimental, there can be effects of vaccines that you can't even anticipate. You never would even know to look for unless you do something like a randomized placebo controlled trial and compare long term health outcomes. That includes things like autoimmune disease, rates of cancer, you know, rates of fertility, all those things that they're supposed to be looking at and in, including all cause mortality long-term. So that hasn't been done. The trials, we don't have data from the trials comparing long-term health outcomes between vaccinated and unvaccinated individuals. So we don't know what the long-term effects of these vaccines are going to be. Um, and that's that's a big concern. And there's also uh, one of my big concerns is, is uh, a phenomenon known as original antigenic sin. And again, I'm not trying to be like too technical or wonky here, but no, yeah. you know, hear me out. There's, so this is a phenomenon. It's in, it's, it's in the literature. We know, for example, with pertussis vaccine, it's a related phenomenon occurs, which is called linked epitopsis suppression. Um, but, but original antigenic sin basically means, uh, in simple terms, that when your immune system is primed, the initial priming of the immune system can prejudice the immune response to any re-exposures thereafter. So if, you're, if your immune system is primed to have a suboptimal immune response, any exposure thereafter will also be suboptimal, and there's no way to go back and fix that. In oh, other Lord. words, if the vaccines confer suboptimal immunity, as they do, if the, the, if the phenomenon of original antigenic sin occurs, I'm not saying it does, I'm saying if it does, then people who have received the, the COVID-19 vaccine will be more susceptible to COVID-19 throughout their lifetimes. Oh, compared wow. to the opportunity cost of natural immunity. This is a big thing that scientists should be looking at and they're not. So original antigenic sin is like, it's like original sin in the Christian tradition. Basically you have this, yeah. you have this kind of stain on your immune system that like inherently makes you more susceptible to severe effects from this disease going forward. Is that about right? In the long run, yes, and in yeah. in in considering natural immunity as an opportunity cost, yeah, that's correct. Boy, and you said that that's happened with pertussis, at least. Yeah, it's a known thing. It's it's a known thing with influenza and, and, and influenza vaccines. It's a known thing. Um, it, there's a it's a related phenomenon. It's actually not an original antigenic sin, but it's it's a related phenomenon. Without getting too much into the details, called linked epitope suppression, which is known with the pertussis vaccine, where children primed with the acellular pertussis vaccine now compared to the natural immunity opportunity cost are more susceptible to pertussis throughout their lifetimes. In other words, because, because natural immunity is superior, but they, there's no way to go back. There's no way to like undo what was done to their immune systems and, uh, and have the immune system unlearn the training that it had from the vaccine. The priming of the immune system by the vaccine has prejudiced their immune systems to respond suboptimally to pertussis infection throughout their lifetimes. And they can't go back. They can't, and we don't know. Maybe it's the case with COVID-19 and SARS-CoV-2 that if somebody gets vaccinated and they prime their immune system with a vaccine and then they experience infection, maybe that infection immune response to that like overrides the, the, the priming done by the vaccine and they come away with essentially the equivalent of natural immunity. That sure. might be the case. I don't know. And that the reason I don't know is because to my knowledge, no studies have been done to look at this question. And I've been looking for them and I'm not finding them. 
I have not found any studies that actually examine this question to determine like whether it is happening. I've seen some studies mention it and say, well, it could happen. This could be the case. And they mention the fact that it's a theoretical possibility, but not any studies have I found that actually look to try to answer the question of, is this occurring? So how many vaccines are associated with original antigenic sin? Oh, to my knowledge, I know influenza, um, and they get linked up to subtope suppression is a slightly different thing, but it, the, mm-hmm. the basic concept is the same where it's you're prejudicing the immune system with the original priming. So there's two, I can't think of any others off the top of my head where this is a known oh, sure. phenomenon. Yeah, that's fine. But I mean, in being that influenza is a respiratory illness is pertussis as well. I don't know anything about pertussis. Yeah. Cause it, it infects the, I mean, it infects the lungs, although it's a bacteria, okay. not a virus. Oh, okay. So that's a, I mean, that's also a potential threat, I guess. Well, here's hoping that here's hoping that, that that's not the case because that's uh, that's kind of a long term thing that yeah. we've all kind of been afraid of as far as this goes. Full disclosure, like even even after we talked, I I got the vaccine because uh, I have some underlying conditions that to me felt like I, I had weighed my options intelligently, you know. And come to find out, the vaccine is less effective and certainly less effective at spreading at preventing the spread of the of the disease. Even if I, you know, if I get it and than have a quote unquote asymptomatic infection, which was the, the biggest deal last year. Right. Now I'm even, I guess, more likely to spread it to others. Is that is that the case? The studies I've seen looking at what they call viral loads. So they, you know, they, they would do a PCR test uh-huh. and then they look at the they don't actually measure the viral load in the studies that I've seen. They 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 do the PCR test and then they look at what's called the cycle threshold. So the PCR works by amplifying mm-hmm. the RNA of the virus. And then so the more cycles that are required to reach the level of positivity that it indicates um, the less RNA was there in the initial sample to begin with. So the fewer cycles is a proxy measure of viral load. So they're looking at viral load using PCR tests. Um, and they found that what they call breakthrough infections, which another term for that in the literature is vaccine failure, where, where the vaccine doesn't prevent the infection. It's called vaccine failure. <laughs> and so when they look at these breakthrough cases and they look at viral loads of, of people who vaccinated people who were infected, um, that they're the same as people who were unvaccinated and infected. So it's not, you know, they're, they're just as likely, according to, you know, the reasoning here, they're just as likely to transmit the virus if they're infected. So what's the deal with Israel? I've heard that like more than half of their COVID deaths now are vaccinated. Is that just because of the sheer numbers of people who are vaccinated there or, or are they having like a, a weird, a weird reaction? That's a good question. Um, so we would expect as the proportion of the population, you know, increase. I mean, if you had hundred percent of the population fully vaccinated, well, then 100% of the people who are hospitalized for COVID-19 are going to be fully vaccinated mm-hmm. people, right? Um, so, yeah, as the proportion of the population that's fully vaccinated increases, we would expect, you know, the proportion of people who are hospitalized that are vaccinated to also increase. Um, but, you know, what we need to look at is like the rate of hospitalization, not not the raw numbers, not the proportions, but the rates. Um, and I, I actually haven't seen any studies doing that. You know, like what is the risk of being hospitalized, whether, you know, based on vaccination status. Um, so I, I don't know. Um, that's really what we really need to look at to be able to answer that question. Like, is it just because, you know, so many people are vaccinated now or is is it, you know, is there something else going on? Because, of course, I mean, a lot. I don't know how many 
how much your listeners know about this, but there's, you know, a phenomenon called uh, um, ADE, antibody dependent enhancement. That was a big concern during the development phase of these vaccines. Um, I haven't really seen strong evidence that that's occurring uh, to date. However, it's always a, a theoretical concern because as this virus mutates, um, there, there could be an escape mutant where this occurs. So ADE, for people don't know who, who don't know, is a, phenom- a phenomenon where the antibodies induced by vaccination, instead of protecting against infection, in fact, act like a Trojan horse and actually make help the virus to infect cells. And so people get more severe disease. This was seen with SARS, the SARS-1 coronavirus, um, the outbreak in 2003, and they tried to develop vaccines for it. They saw this phenomenon of ADE where the vaccinated animals had more severe disease than the unvaccinated animals. So now, this was one concern going into this with the development of the of vaccines against a related coronavirus. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, and they, they like to say, oh, well, you know, look at the data that's not happening. We haven't seen ADE. There's no evidence that it's happening. Well, I, I, I agree. I haven't seen it. Um, but the thing is, is that, again, as this virus, if an escape mutant evolves and suddenly the antibodies induced against the original Wuhan strain, because the vaccines um, encode the spike protein for the original Wuhan strain of SARS-CoV-2. So, you know, if a mutation occurs where now the antibodies against the original strain are no longer neutralizing, they're no longer effectively neutralizing the virus, there is the potential that um, that non-neutralizing antibodies could not just be um, insufficient to prevent infection, but actually could be detrimental. Um, that possibility, that's always a theoretical possibility. A lot of the stuff that was super controversial last year, like, is still controversial in libertarian circles, I guess. But like, you don't really hear about it from like the the powers that be or the media or whatever. Like, you know, mask up to save a life. It's not really a slogan anymore. Have any more studies been done to either strengthen or debunk the kind of narratives that were just everywhere last year? Yeah, I mean, at this point, there's there's many studies, you know, like looking at the effects of lockdowns, mask mandates, um, and you know, a lot of these studies. There's studies going either way. There's some that say, oh, well, look, we can we can show that, you know, this supports the conclusion that these these policies had an effect. Um, but uh, you know, a lot of studies find opposite conclusions, and, and you really, I mean, if you look, the, the evidence is so weak that they had a positive effect and the evidence that they didn't is very strong. So, I mean, like you look at masks and you, you compare data. I mean, you can look at this, just look at the curve. You look at the epidemic wave between states and you just try to guess like which states implemented mask mandates and, and when mm-hmm. and you, you can't tell because yeah, the epidemic I mean, waves are the Tom same is... regardless. And their policies just had no observable effect at all. Yeah. And there's studies that look into this, looked at this, you know, scientifically, and, and they find that, you know, that yeah, mask mandates, we find they don't have they didn't have an effect. Or lockdowns. You know, not only there's there was um one study not too long ago that found not only that they did not reduce mortality, they did not have an a, a a positive effect on like all cause mortality, but they actually had a detrimental effect on all cause mortality. Mm-hmm. Well, it shouldn't say effect not necessarily causal, but there's an association, the association we would expect if the public health authorities were right in all the declarations would would be that those would have reduced all cause mortality. That would be the association. And yet that's not what we see. I feel like when we talked 
the big question was like, is it spread through anal excretions like farts? Yeah. Yeah. Did that ever come to anything? There were so many weird stories last year that I just kind of want to know, like what? Well, what fecal transmission was a theoretical mode of, of transmission. Okay. Um, the, the big thing that was in the news at the time was, you know, like people flushing toilets and it gets aerosolized and then yeah. everyone in the bathroom gets infected. Yes, that was one thing. Um, but I looked at, you know, those studies that they were relying on to support this claim that, oh, it's spreading through poop, you know. And I, I, I found very weak evidence and, and, you know, my, and even outright scientific fraud. Like there was one paper that the New York Times cited on this when they had a headline article about it. Um, and that paper claimed that it's now been well demonstrated that it spreads through aerosolized aerosols from fecal matter. So I looked at their sources for that statement and I looked up each of those studies and it was false. Not a single one of those studies supported that conclusion. And one of them directly contradicted it. <laughs> so this is, I mean, this is outright scientific fraud. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, is that that's not that uncommon. I mean, I, that's just one example. But I mean, this happens very often in my research where I'll be reading scientific papers and they will be making claims, affirmative, positive claims and statements of fact. And, it, you know, like conclude maybe in their conclusions, but their, but their findings don't actually support their conclusions or their findings actually contradict their conclusions or they're citing a source to support a statement. And that source does not support their statement or it contradicts their statement. I mean, this is so routine. <laughs> I mean, this is a thing. And in science, I mean, um, there's, so, there's so much political, it's so politicized. Uh-huh. I mean, you really can't, I mean, you really can't trust anything that when they say, oh, well, science tells us this. It's like, well, does it? I mean, you always have to ask that question. Does it really? Because uh, it's very typical when they, you know, what they say the science says is not what the science says. And I know I, I asked you this last time, but what do you think the motivation behind that is? Obviously, I don't want you to try to read people's minds, but I mean, where are they? Funding. Yeah. Okay. That's what I think is probably money. What about the politicians? I mean, it's not like they're getting paid for this power. Yeah. Okay. So just basically they're, they're, they're scientists. They, they want funding. Yeah. So they're going to get it from the pharmaceutical industry or they're going to get it from the government, from the taxpayers. Right. Okay. Uh, predominantly. And those are two, the two major sources of funding in science. And so they know, like if, if I produce certain types of data, <laughs> I know I can get I can get my grants and I can get my funding and so the, it's all it's all politicized it is it, it it's a it's a a malevolent influence of taxpayer funding of of science you know public funding of government funding of science because of course the government has policies the government doesn't want to fund scientists who do research that contradicts their policy positions mm-hmm. So naturally, it doesn't happen. So, you know, so, you know, they fund the scientists who are going to produce the things that they want to hear. It's the same as like when they, with the Iraq war and in the intelligence community. Sure. Yeah. And you had, you know, you had, you know, the claim of the aluminum tubes being, you know, stovepiped up to Cheney <laughs> where, you know, like the serious analysis was just kind of like hushed aside. And it's, you had this absurd claims about the aluminum tubes that was treated as though that's gospel truth. Um, you know, that analyst, Joe, um, he, he knew that if he produced something that was total BS, but, you know, he knew he could, he could advance his career by doing that. And, you know, and his was the report that got stovepiped up to the White House. I mean, this is, this happens in science where, 
you have this malevolent, it's so corrupt, the corruption is so thorough in the scientific establishment. And we, we talk often about the corruption in the medical establishment, but part of that is the, the scientific community and the corruption within the scientific community. It's something we often don't look at, but you know, this is actually uncontroversial. I mean, there's, there's studies about that. I mean, there's studies about how corrupt the, oh, the, really? the scientific community is and, and how the peer review process itself is a huge part of the problem in science because you know they, you know that the journals themselves act uh, as to, as you know like information laundering operations. Sure, yeah, they're as, like the kingmakers and gatekeepers, and yeah, um, and that was uh, that's not my term. That was um, Horton, one of the uh, publishers of the Lancet. Had, uh, Richard Horton had, had made that comment. I mean, it's so this isn't even controversial. I've heard that Dr. Fauci has all kinds of ties to pharmaceutical companies, everything from, yes. you know, owning tons of stock to patents to all, all kinds of stuff. Do you have like a, like a basic rundown of his sort of conflicts of interest? I don't know about his personal stock holdings or anything like that, or personal investments. Um, but he's certainly, he's part, he's literally partnered with pharmaceutical companies, n- namely Moderna. Oh, the, the, the NIAID, his agency, the, uh, under the NIH, they're literally partnered with Moderna, the manufacturer of one of the mRNA vaccines. The partners, the, the, go, the U.S. That. government helped develop the technology and has patents on the technology used in the Moderna vaccine. Oh, wow. So there's no, yeah, it's, and that's right out in the open. What's the difference between the Moderna vaccine and the Pfizer one? Those are the two mRNA ones, right? Yeah. What's the main difference? Do you know? Um. I, I don't really. I mean, they both use the mRNA technology as opposed to the, the Janssen or Johnson & Johnson one, mm-hmm. which is a, what's called a vector vaccine, which uses a different type of a delivery method. So, you know, if you looked at the the formulations of the vaccines and things, I don't know really what, what the detailed differences would be between them. You know, I've kind of focused more broadly on just on the fact that sure, there is yeah. mRNA vaccine versus like the vector vaccine. So, yeah, I don't know the details of the, the differences. When people call them experimental gene therapy, do you like do you use that language? Is that something that you would consider accurate? I haven't, but I mean, it, it is according to Moderna. That's what it is. It's a, it's a gene oh, really? therapy. I mean, you can. I've seen a document where Moderna just says, according to the FDA, the FDA classifies this technology as gene therapy. Oh wow! So that's according to Moderna. <laughs> so, if you know, if 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 that's what Moderna says, I'll, I'll buy it. Um, as for being experimental, well, under emergency use authorization, that's, that's what emergency use authorization is. It's for experimental products. So yeah, they're experimental. Uh, Pfizer, you know, Pfizer has now been approved is the only one that's been approved, at least to my knowledge, maybe something in the last couple of days has changed with Moderna, but as far as I know, they still have emergency use authorization. Mm -hmm. Um, whereas Pfizer has been approved. So Pfizer, according to the FDA, they no longer consider that to be an experimental or investigational product. However, I, I don't apply that same standard because to me, do we know what the long-term health outcomes are? No, mm-hmm. we don't have data on that. So is this experimental? Yes. It's gone from the randomized placebo-controlled trials to the population. And now it's, now it's the population being used to, it's a mass uncontrolled experiment on the yeah. human population. Well, and they're and they're they're not letting the control group remain a control group either. That's right. kind of a big thing, as far as I'm concerned. Where you know the control right. group is, you know, once the study's over, the control group is then injected with the the actual thing. 
or at least well, the, the ones who got the placebos. I yes. guess that is the control group, right? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I'm forgetting my high school biology. So there's no way to tell what the long-term effects are. Precisely. Yeah. For your listeners, that's the truth. That's what's been done with these studies. So the, the, the clinical trials are still underway. They haven't ended the phase three clinical trials because they were originally planned to go, I think, two years, something like that. And so they, they, use, they have used preliminary data from the trials for emergency use authorization, starting back in December 2020 with Pfizer's authorization. Um, and then for the approval, the same thing. It's still preliminary data. They use six months of data as opposed to, I think the original was two or three um, for the authorization. But the trials are ongoing. The thing is, is they have unblinded the trials. Oh. And they have essentially vaccinated away the control group. So they, they unblinded the trials. I told people like, well, you didn't get the vaccine. So if you want it now, we'll give it to you. <laughs> and so many people opted to get vaccinated. And uh, Yeah, you'd think all know, of them would. I mean, if, Doshi, if they were so eager to... PMJ. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, if they were so eager to join the study, then you'd think that they would jump at the chance to get the real vaccine if they weren't, if they didn't get it the first time. Which is the case. Uh, I, um, I think it was Moderna had told BM, uh, Peter Doshi of the BMJ um, that essentially all, I mean, almost all, it was like 98% or something mm-hmm. of the people in the control group opted to get vaccinated. I, I Don't quote me on those figures. I would have to look up the article, but that's just from memory. It was it was a very high proportion. It's essentially... The study is has been unblinded, and the control group has been vac- vaccinated away. He didn't give the percentages for uh, I think it was Pfizer and, and Janssen because the the companies didn't provide him with any proportions or data on that. But you know the the expectation is that it would be similar for the other manufacturers. Do you know if they've done many opinion polls since last year regarding just sort of the change in sentiment regarding some of the measures that were taken last year? That's a good question. I just trying to think if I've seen any. Um, I none are jumping to mind that I've seen. No, it like, seems it, like as not. far as like you know, back then, what what was your opinion of of the lockdowns versus now? What's your opinion of the lockdowns or of masks? That those kind of polls. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't think I've seen any. Yeah, that would be interesting. At all. So I like I hang out with and my my in real life friends are mostly on the left, and it seems like they're all kind of over it. <laughs> so I'm I'm interested in what like the the normie leftist sentiment is. My only other friend who is still you know kind of COVID scared is because his wife is pregnant and they're still being super careful. Like we we went to dinner the other night and he rolled down the windows in the car and then like we had to sit on the patio, which is fine because it was a really nice night. But you know we knew that we were sitting on the patio not because we wanted to sit outside, but because you know they're very very concerned that they're yeah. gonna they're gonna catch this boogie bug. Okay, so you just recently released a new book. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that? It sure. sounds like a pretty terrible story, but probably one that yeah. needed to be told. Last month. So the book is titled uh, The War on Informed Consent. And the subtitle is The Persecution of Dr. Paul Thomas by the Oregon Medical Board. So it tells the story of Dr. Paul Thomas out in Portland, Oregon, who is the author famously of the book, The Vaccine-Friendly Plan, which provides parents um, kind of, you know, the, the goal of the book is to help navigate them through the decision-making process with the CDC's vaccine schedule. Um, and it presents an alternative schedule, an example alternative schedule in the book, um, essentially designed to minimize the cumulative exposure to neurotoxic aluminum, which is used as an adjuvant in many childhood vaccines. And so having published that, you know, the 
authorities started to go after him, started to investigate him because, of course, the authorities have, again, that political goal of let's achieve a high vaccination rate among the childhood population. Well, because he respects parents' right to make their own informed choice about childhood vaccinations in his practice, he naturally has a lower vaccination rate. So that's a big sin. <laughs> he can't do that, right? Yeah. That's a no-no. So they uh, started to in- investigate him and kind of harass him somewhat. And one of the in one of the letters that they sent him, a complaint letter, they they demanded that he produce peer-reviewed evidence to support his approach to vaccinations. Um, so he did. He produced a peer-reviewed study using his clinic's patient data, the de-identified patient data. He had analysis done on it. And what the study showed was that comparing the variably vaccinated children in his practice with the completely unvaccinated children in his practice, that the incidence of diagnosis for a broad range of health outcomes and incidence of office visits for these outcomes was significantly less Hmm. in the unvaccinated children. So this was very strong evidence that his unvaccinated patients were the healthiest children in his practice. And so he produced a study. It was published on November 22nd, 2020. Within days, the Oregon Medical Board held an emergency meeting and emergently suspended his license, um, accusing him of being a threat to public health. However, they completely ignored the the peer-reviewed evidence that they had asked for, showing that on the contrary, his approach is highly effective. And, and his his patients are unusually healthy compared to both the general population and the unvaccinated patients are specifically uh, appear to be extraordinarily healthy compared to patients who, who who have been vaccinated. So they completely ignored the data that they had asked for and suspended his license. And the thing is, is they had they had these pretexts in their suspension order that are demonstrably false. And and some of them are absurd. So for example, like uh, like criticizing him for ordering antibody tests for measles as an unnecessary medical procedure when it's actually written into Oregon law that a, a you know that evidence of immunity to measles meaning a, a positive antibody test mm-hmm. is a, an appropriate substitute for for vaccination that you don't need the vaccine if you if you can show evidence that you already have natural immunity to it or that you have immunity to it from prior, so maybe this is get the second dose because you already have immunity from the first dose. It's written into law that that is an appropriate practice. And yet, and so he, and he was doing that and they're criticizing him and accusing him of violating the law for doing this when like, like the Oregon medical board evidently doesn't know what the law even says, because it says right in there that this is, this is an acceptable practice. So it's things like this. I mean, totally, totally. It would be laughable if it wasn't so serious. Um, it, it is just false accusations. So the main accusation being, you know, that he's he's bullying patients into signing vaccine refusal forms. Well, this is a bunch of nonsense because number one, the reason that he had so many patients, uh, parents, you know, parents, a huge practice. At one point, he had fifteen thousand patients. They were flocking to his practice precisely because he respects informed consent. Because it's precise, precisely because the parents were sick and tired of being bullied by every other pediatrician in the state. So obviously, That's the insane. Oregon Medical Board has no problem with bullying. 
So they had all these false pretexts. And the, and, and the, the obvious thing that leaped out was the fact that okay, he is respecting the right to informed consent. And that's why that suspended his license. So that's the true reason. So my book details that. Uh, in great detail. It also provides a lot of the background context to understand like, what's the significance of this story, the story of Dr. Paul Thomas in the big scheme of things, you know, in the, in the bigger picture. So I go back and talk historically, you know, things like, you know, how the, the CDC, the CDC schedule was exposing children to cumulative levels of mercury in excess of the EPA's own safety guidelines throughout the nineties, you know, things like this. So there's a lot of historical context that you really need to understand like what's the significance of this happening today, and and why is it titled the War on Informed Consent? And um, and that's really what it's about. It's 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 hopefully a wake up call to people who aren't already in the know that, you know, there is an all out assault, there is an all out war being waged on our right to make our own informed choice, and we need to stand up and say no more. Do you know is the Oregon Medical Board a government body or is it uh, independent of the state? It's a it's a state agency. Yep. Okay. I know also there, like a few years ago, I remember reading in Reason that the engineering board in Oregon tried to tried to sue a guy who didn't have an engineer's license, but he had been a practicing engineer somewhere else. And he wrote an article or did some kind of like informal study of traffic lights and used the word engineer in like, he just said, you know, I'm an engineer. I know these things. And uh, the Oregon engineering board tried to sue him for falsely presenting himself as an engineer, like practicing engineering without a license. Is that common? Is that like a thing that happens a lot? Or is this just something that is just insane in Oregon? I don't, I don't know. Maybe that's something unique to Oregon. So, um, but, but that raises a good point though, about the problem with licensing itself. So the licensing is essentially a means for the state to dictate how medicine is practiced. And if the state wants doctors to, make sure that they're achieving a high vaccination rate in their, in their practice, for Mm -hmm. example, they can bully doctors into doing what they want. And so they're interfering in the doctor patient relationship. And a great example of this kind of mindset comes from Senator Richard Pan in California, who, whose position, who's, and he wrote this, I'm, you know, like paraphrasing, but partly quoting him here, he wrote a paper in a journal where he said that when doctors write exemptions to vaccinations, they're not engaged in the practice of medicine. They are performing an administrative function in service to the state. So there you have it. This is the view. This is the authoritarian position of guys like Senator Richard Pan and, and, you know, broadly in the, in the government itself. I mean, this is the view of, of, the Oregon Medical Board, evidently, and and uh, the the state government there, and many other states throughout throughout the country. So, this is this is the nature of the threat that we're up against. I mean, these are outright totalitarians that that they want they view us, they view our bodies as the property of the state, and they want to be able to say, well, we can do whatever we want to you. If we, if we want to inject you with something, we have that right. You don't have a right to say no. That's what it really comes down to. Here in Minnesota, our state of emergency was allowed to lapse, thankfully. And so the governor hasn't placed any more restrictions on us, but a lot of like theaters and things like that are doing vax mandates. Do you foresee any potential for like the state of emergencies where they've been lifted to go back into place? Do you think the political capital is there in some places? I don't think it's there in Minnesota. And frankly, 
our governor, despite the fact that he's a Democrat, is pretty anti-unilateral power. You know, obviously I can't read his mind and he's a politician, so I can't believe what he says. But just given his record, it seems like he was pretty reluctant to continue piling on restrictions when he felt like he didn't need to. Like, we, I think we were the first state with a Democrat governor to lift the mask mandate. But, you know, all of that can change at the drop of a hat. What do you think is around the bend as far as that goes? What state are you in? I'm in Minnesota. Minnesota. Okay. Yeah. So I'm in Michigan. Yeah. So I, I can't really speak. I mean, it varies by state. And so um, I can speak to Michigan. And in Michigan, sure. um, I think to answer the question, it would be the governor here has very little political capital to be able to re-implement um, something like strict lock- lockdowns or even the mask mandate. Um, there isn't cur- currently a statewide m- mandate for masks. Um, a lot, you know, there's certain measures in place um, to an extent, but certainly, you know, those those strict lockdowns are, are not in place anymore. Um, and I, I think she knows that, well, I mean, number one, we had a Supreme Court ruling here in Michigan that stripped her of the authority for her executive orders that, that she had issued, you know, back in March, April of 2020. Um, the, the Supreme Court of Michigan judged that those orders were unconstitutional and she had never had the authority. Um, so then the, the administration kind of switched and said, oh, well, the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services has the authority. And so they just started continued doing the same things through the MDAHHS. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, the whole reasoning behind the Supreme Court's decision was this, that, okay, well, the, the, the legislative branch cannot delegate its lawmaking powers to the executive branch. This is fundamental principle of constitutional government. Right? So, okay, so if if the legislative branch can't can't have deferred that authority to the governor, well, by the same reasoning, the legislative branch can't have deferred that authority to the Department of Health and Human Services, which of course right. is an executive agency. Yeah. And so, the same reasoning applies, even though it had that hasn't gone to the Supreme Court yet. But I mean, it, essentially, they've continued to put out these unconstitutional, illegal orders um, since. And and I think this is one of the reasons that it, the administration here knows that they're on such shaky legal ground, and and also for popularity. I mean, um, there's a guy named Garrett Soldano, uh, I believe is the pronunciation of his last name, here who's running for governor. And he's running precisely like, you know, no more. Like we were so fed up mm. with the lockdowns and all this madness. And he's not a politician. He's he's actually a chiropractor. Um, and But that's been his platform is like, we're, I'm running to make sure this can never happen again. That's his whole thing. Um, and she knows, like, she is she is, feels threatened by him. Um, and so I think she knows she just, she, can't, she has no leverage at this point, even in a, in a, in a blue state. We've got an actual doctor who is also a legislator, and he's been vocally opposed to the lockdowns. I think he was even on Fox News and things like that because you know you don't you don't have very many physicians who are also elected legislators. So he's running for governor, but also the Republican primary is pretty packed, including with the My Pillow guy. So we'll see what happens there. I sit on the Libertarian Party of Minnesota's executive committee, so I can't actually like endorse somebody, but man, I hope that guy gets the Republicans nomination. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I, I mean, I guess politically it's becoming less and less popular. And I, I think that's kind of promising. Yes. On the other hand, venues left and right. I've got a friend who works for a concert promoter and I've told him like he gets free tickets and invites me to shows all the time, but they're asking for Vax passes and things like that, that, you know, they want to see your card or an, 
a negative test and I just don't feel comfortable showing them that stuff. Like, yeah. I mean, it's, it's fine. You know, if I'm volunteering the information like I am here, but right. to me, it just feels coercive and I don't want to contribute to that sort of culture. So, you know, I'll go to the, I'll go to one of the many, many venues that aren't, that aren't asking for that. Like, you know, right. and we've got a comedy club, the Acme comedy club, which is kind of a legendary club. They're very, very like, you know, your master optional, don't show us your paperwork, all that stuff. Like there's signs everywhere, which I love. Do you know of any, um, like, I don't know, websites or anything like that that have listed businesses that are us friendly? Oh, that's, no, I haven't, but you know, that's a good idea. Somebody, somebody should do okay. that. All right. Yeah, maybe we should. <laughs> <laughs> cool. That's a call out for, uh, for the audience members who know yeah. something about web development. Yeah. All right. What haven't we talked about that you think we should? Oh gosh. Um, you know, maybe it's coming back to the point of natural immunity before we, we close it down yeah, here. Um, cool. Yeah, I just wanted to kind of continue that point a little bit. So that's my my current um, project. I have a series of articles on that specific topic because, of course, you know, from the start, they said, well, it's natural immunity is inferior and is insufficient. And so even if you, you've already recovered from infection, you still need to get the vaccine. And um, I'm, I'm going through and showing what a bunch of BS that is. So mm-hmm. there's three main arguments they've used. The first one is that essentially they equate immunity with antibodies. And so we, we heard last summer and through the fall of 2020 that, that waning antibodies meant loss of immunity. That was false. Yeah. It was, they knew it was false at the time. Was that just a ploy to get this vaccine regime in place? I, I mean, the T-cell immunity, like if you actually listened to some of the doctors who have been interviewed on the podcast that I listened to, you knew about T-cell immunity. Otherwise, right. you never heard of it. Right. So do you think that was just like, we're going to need to get these vaccines out there and we're, you know, we have an agenda and that we're going to, we're going to, we're going to enact that come by hook or by crook? Yes. Okay. The short answer. That's absolutely bullshit. And here's here's why I can say that because every scientist who was promoting that claim knew better. Mm -hmm. They knew better. There's no question about that. I mean, we're talking basic immunology here. They knew that just because antibodies, I mean, they knew it was normal for antibodies to wane after recovery from infection. That's normal. That's what we'd expect. And for them to, to point to that and say, oh my gosh, these people are losing their immunity. I mean, that was that was political propaganda. So the, that was scientists acting as, pro, that, was, that was professional propagandists masquerading in the role of scientists. They knew that that was untrue. So that we know, we know, we know, we know that they were, they were just BSing us. Then it comes to the journalists who are reporting this and with all these headlines, right, about loss of immunity. So how do we explain that? Well, there's two two possible solutions, two possible explanations. One is is you know these science writers are totally incompetent. And they really have no knowledge of immunology whatsoever, and they're writing about these topics, and so they're really just too irresponsible and incompetent to be given that assignment. That's one possibility. Sure. Second possibility is yeah, they know their stuff, and they understand that immunities, you know, that, that antibodies don't equal immunity, but they promoted that claim anyway, so they knowingly were promoting misinformation. Those are the two possibilities. So that's what happened. Um, and, and so from that claim, from the claim that antibodies equal immunity and, and, and loss of antibodies equals loss of immunity, and then from that, they built that more antibodies equals better immunity. <laughs> Even though the correlation, if you look at, at cases, you know, if you look at you know, mild cases versus asymptomatic versus severe cases mm-hmm. of COVID-19. The association actually was people, it wasn't that people who had milder or no symptoms 
had higher titers of antibodies. That wasn't the case at all. In fact, quite the opposite. People with severe disease are those who tend to have super high levels of antibodies. So what does that tell us? It tells us it's not about antibodies. I and mean, the people who, who never even developed, there are people who recovered from, from the infection and never even developed detectable levels, levels of antibodies, and yet they recovered from the infection. Why? Because of what you mentioned, they have strong cellular immunity. And so they didn't even need any antibodies to clear the infection. And so, you know, this, and, and it's not like this is new information. It's not like they, oh, they recently discovered this thing called cellular immunity. I mean, it, this is, again, it's basic immunology. So when they're, the point being like they haven't been lying to us, right? And then the, the third argument, they take that and they build up, so they have those two arguments there. Antibodies equal immunity. More antibodies equals better, stronger immunity. And then they build on that and they say, oh, well, look at the neutralization activity in, you know, in, in, in the lab. And they say, oh, look at you know, the, the, the neutralization activity of the antibodies in the blood you know, of people who recovered is lower than these people who had the vaccine. And so they say, oh, so that, that proves that the vaccines are superior immunity. But the thing is, is that what that overlooks completely is because you're just doing that in the lab, uh-huh. right? And you only look, you're only considering the, the humoral immunity, the, the neutralization activity of, you know, like in, in the plasma sample, you're completely overlooking all of the rest of the immune system, mm-hmm. <laughs> including memory B cells and, and long live memory, bone marrow, bone marrow plasma cells that in vivo, instead of in vitro, that in the living person, would mean that, yeah, it doesn't matter that their, their, their antibody titers have, have waned over time and, and that there's less antibodies in circulation now than there were before. It doesn't matter because even if they're re-exposed, their immune system is trained. It already knows how to rapidly reproduce those antibodies on demand anytime there's re-exposure. So they do these in vitro studies and they say, oh, look at this. This proves that the vaccines are superior, but it does a bunch of nonsense. And they know it's a bunch of nonsense because they know that there's cellular T-cell immunity and they know that there's B-cell memory and that, that there's long-lived plasma cells um, that can rapidly produce antibodies uh, as needed. And so you know, when, they, when they're making these arguments, the scientists making these arguments know better because they understand immunology and they know what they're saying is a bunch of nonsense, but they put it out there for the media to then propagate. Um, it's, it's all such a big scam it's really, in my mind, is just institutionalized scientific fraud. Um, and so that's what my most recent series of articles is, is exposing. So um, I encourage people to go to jeremyrhammond.com and get on my newsletter and, and, and follow that work and check out my book, The Warm and Informed Consent. Cool. Well, thanks a lot, Jeremy. I had one other question that came up in my brain while you were talking just now, and it's sure. it's, it's off the topic that we were just on and you just plugged. So we should close out, but I'm selfish with, with my questions. So here go we go. For it. Do you have any insight as to why anti-parasitics seem to have strong anecdotal therapeutic benefit in not just COVID-19, but in lots of sort of respiratory viral infections? Um, are you speaking of, is ivermectin an anti-parasitic? Ivermectin and then the hydroxychloroquine both yeah. are yeah. known as anti-parasitics, but uh, they've right. also been studied and and. I mean, this goes back, you know, at least a decade. I, I think the first study I've ever seen with uh, hydroxychloroquine being used against a virus was from like 2013. So mm-hmm. it's not a new thing. It no, just happened yeah. to become political with this. Yeah, I, I don't know because, you know, it, there's, 
it can be there's different substances can be antiparasitic and antiviral and antibacterial. Sure. Um, and so I, I'm not sure if it's the antiparasitic properties of it or the antiviral properties of it. Well, obviously, if, if it has an antiviral yeah, property, maybe it's, like maybe, maybe it's just, maybe, in other words, I, I don't know whether it's both antiparasitic and antiviral properties or just antiviral properties. Um, so I, I don't know. I haven't dove deeply enough into those um, medications to, to know um, that, you know, how they work or things like that. So. Cool. Well, good. I'm but glad yeah, that you don't question. because uh, those are hugely political issues that uh, may, may not be more important than what you're actually doing. So yeah. cool. JeremyRHammond.com. Is there anything else you want to, you want to plug? No, that's it. Head, head to JeremyRHammond.com and sign up for my newsletter. All right. Thanks a lot, Jeremy. I will uh, hopefully talk to you in a few more months. We'll get another update from you. Sounds good. See ya. All right. Thanks again to Jeremy for joining me today. Thanks to you as always for tuning in. Make sure to follow all of Jeremy's links because his writing, like I said in the intro, is indispensable. If you want to know what's going on in the world, especially as it surrounds health freedom, COVID-19 pandemic, that sort of thing, then you want to be following Jeremy. You also want to be following this show, head to blackbirdpodcast.com, sign up with your email address for the free feed, or with $7 a month or $70 a year for the premium offerings. Those premium offerings, once again, of course, include early access to these interviews, unedited and including everything that we talk about before we actually start with the formal show. You don't want to miss that. Once again, that's blackbirdpodcast.com. And with that, this is another episode of Blackbird in the Can. I'll see you on the next one. And until then, live free. 